Welcome to the Equine Veterinary Education Podcasts. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Equine Veterinary Education Podcast. I'm Ewan Laidlaw, an ambulatory equine vet working along the border between Scotland and England. For this episode, I'll be joined by Dr. Steve O'Grady to discuss his article, White Line Disease, a Review, a bracket, 1998-2018. This was first published in Equine Veterinary Education on the 21st of October in 2019. Dr. Steve Grady was a professional farrier for 10 years prior to obtaining a degree in veterinary medicine from the University of Pretoria in South Africa in 1981. After graduating, he went on to do an equine internship in Cape Town, South Africa, before moving back to the US and spending 10 years working at Georgetown Equine Hospital. Following that, in 2003, he opened Northern Virginia Equine in Marshall, Virginia, and in 2014, he moved to Keswick, Virginia, opening Virginia Therapeutic Farrery. Both are referral practices devoted to foot disease and equine therapeutic farrery. Reading your review article, um, it seems that we as vets struggle to create a definition for white line disease, and, and you've suggested that it, it's more of a syndrome than a disease. Yes, that's that's true. Uh, there's a couple things that that we well, there's an awful lot that we don't understand. Number one, white line disease does not have a clear cut definition. Therefore, a syndrome may uh, may be more appropriate. Now, <clears throat> white line disease as a disease is a little hard to, to put together as we term disease. White line disease starts with a separation in the bottom of the hoof wall and or in the horn of the hoof wall. It appears that opportunistic bacteria, fungi, different uh, organisms get into this separation and start to multiply, and then they start to digest horn or the horn deteriorates. Therefore, we could call it a disease process. However, there's only certain horses where the process will take place. Uh, in other words, it appears that there is some type of immune uh, problem that allows this um, uh, process to take place. The fact that the horn is digested by these different types of bacteria would, would appear to make it a disease process. But then the whole process, I think, becomes a syndrome. So other terms are often used, Steve, such as CD2 and um, onychomycosis. Uh, can you explain the difference between these, please? Yeah, let me uh, uh, let me try and, and clarify that. White line disease can uh, can occur in a separation in the toe, the quarters, or all the way around the foot. Sometimes, with white li- with uh, a CD toe, the CD toe or the uh, deteriorated 
hoof wall is going to be right in the center of the horn wall. And it appears that it is associated with a uh, not with the notch in the distal phalanx, or what we call the cretum marginalis. This seems to disrupt the blood supply of the circumflex artery, in other words, where it doesn't get good circulation to that little section of the wall. So this is a very focal, round area that's always in the center of the toe. Now, if we consider onychomycosis, this is well described in the humans, it's well described in the dog. A nicomycosis starts at the nail bed of the dog or the horse, and it moves outwards toward the outer edge of the nail. In contrast with the horse, it begins on the bottom of the hoof wall, it extends proximally along the hoof wall, and toward the carnet, but never invades the carnet. So I don't think uh, a nicomycosis is really a... Uh, really shouldn't be associated or shouldn't be a term that's used for uh, so-called white line disease. And just to go back to the syndrome, um, it's, a, it's my thought along with others, I think that white line disease, the term is here to stay, but another term that could be uh, a little bit, uh, how would you say, more appropriate would be white zone disease. And is that because white line disease in itself is a, is a misnomer? Yes, it, it really is because white, the, the white line disease actually occurs in the, in the inner part of the hoof wall termed the stratum medium. In other words, the inner side of the stratum medium. This area of the stratum medium is always non-pigmented in all horses, regardless of the color of the, of the foot whatsoever. Uh, the white line as we, we call it, or the zona uh, alba, there's a lot of different names for it, uh, is further uh, uh, palmer or plantar from the inner part of the hoof wall. Now, and it's not actually, actually white, it's a yellow plastic color. And <clears throat> it's formed by uh, the... Um, epidermal cells from the uh, epidermal lamellae, uh, along with horn tubules that are surrounded or above the termal papillae. This is what secretes this yellow plastic material that binds the hoof wall with the sole. So white line disease, if that's what we want to call it, occurs superficial to the white line, which is actually yellow. Yes, I um, I actually refer to the white line as we all know it on the bottom of the foot as the sole wall junctions. That's how I the whole sole wall junction. That's how I refer to it in in uh, in the uh, things we write about. And you're right that the uh, white inner part or the white non-pigmented inner part of the hoof wall is dorsal to the sole wall junction or so-called white line as we know it. Am I right in thinking that um, the key to white line disease is, is hoof wall separation then? So why um, with lots of horses get hoof wall separations 
um, which are, are minor and inconsequential, why in some instances does that hoof wall separation um, turn into white line disease and, and not in others? Um, uh, I think I, I, I touched on this when we started. You're absolutely right. It's very hard when we find a horse uh, that doesn't have uh, some form or uh, small hoof ball separations in the, in the bottom of the foot. And you can curette these things, and usually they will just, you know, you can get right to the bottom of it, and they're fairly minor. There are other ones that will get filled with debris, and this debris gets pushed up dorsally and for some reason it starts to proliferate and this is where you get these horn digesting bacteria that start to uh, uh, deteriorate the hoof wall or digest it if you want to use that word. Um, As far as separations go, uh, we, we don't know why that happens. I tried on 10 horses to take horses that had marked white line disease and transfer it to other horses with, oh, some deep separations. We were unsuccessful in in all cases. Going on from there, Steve, um, what what are the risk factors for white line disease? Well, white line disease, it would, the risk factors would depend on how, much of a surface area uh, where the separation has occurred or where it has uh, progressed to. Um, When uh, it is moderate, you can certainly get hoof ball uh, uh, distortions where you'll get a, you can get a flare on one side or you can get, uh, you know, different changes uh, in the hoof capsule. When it gets severe and it has enough surface area that is compromised, then you get into the problems where the distal families can be displaced in some direction or another. That's the biggest problem that we run into there. So uh, does does moisture play a part in it? Uh, I'm I'm not sure. Um, I've seen, it seems... Uh, in Florida and some of the areas where I work where it's moist uh, for a good part of the year where you have a pretty good rainy season, uh, it seems where you'll see a few more cases. Um, years ago, when I went to South Africa, they told me, well, we don't have uh, white line disease in South Africa because, you know, it's a hot, Arab, dry kind of a climate, especially where horses are kept. Well, when I got there, white line disease was rampant. So I think uh, what wetness can do and or dryness, it can proliferate or it can make it uh, uh, easier for horses to to uh, get separations in their feet, especially with the with. Uh, with the moisture, with the feet being very wet, over time uh, they lose some of that uh, that strength, and you can go ahead and get uh, additional separations. And I know just in your review, it, you touched on the genetic propensity, um, which is recognised in Connemara horses um, from you know, originally from the west of Ireland. Are there any other breeds um, where where that's been found, or? Or, or not? Um, 
the study from that study on Connemara's came from the University of uh, California at Davis. And, you know, I read the publication. I've spoken to the authors and, uh, you know, in practice, we have, especially when I was in equine practice, I did two big Connemara farms. Uh, and we have seen, obviously, Connemara ponies for laminitis. And I have never recognized uh, separations uh, in this particular breed personally uh, or animals that have been referred. Um, I'm not disputing the, the author's work. I'm sure it's fine, but I just um, I haven't seen that, uh, seen what they describe. Therefore, I couldn't I couldn't vouch for it in um, in other breeds as well. I haven't seen a uh, any breed that has more of a um, susceptibility than others. I think it depends on the type of foot. It, as as going back to an earlier point, as, as poor poor balance, mechanical stress, um, is that is that the biggest the biggest predisposing factor for white line disease, in your opinion? You know that that that's a good point. That plays a big role because. Uh, it needs to be remembered that at the inner part of the hoof wall, uh, inner part of the stratum medium, that non-pigmented area, is also the softest part of the hoof wall. In other words, it's getting closer to the circulation. Uh, on the other hand, it's going to be a focal point where the force of breakover and just plain stance phase of the stride are going to put the most force uh, when the horse moves or even standing there. So this area is going to be under more stress. Therefore, if you allow uh, different uh, hoof distortions to continue, or if you don't look at long toes or club feet or anything that stresses that area, it can certainly potentiate uh, separations. The medium of a podcast may not be ideal for this, but Briefly, could you try to explain how we as, and I think you might already have touched on this, but how should we have, as vets recognize white line disease? It's hard uh, until uh, the animal sh starts to show signs or lameness. And uh, when you have these signs, then you have generally have some displacement in the, uh, in the foot. Now, um, there are... Uh, to go back a bit, I think it's important, and I, I stress it, especially with you know with with the writing we do and whatever, that all veterinarians that work with horses become very familiar with hoof conformation. So when you see hoof conformation with some form of distortion, such as a long toe and or low heel, club foot, sheared heel, mismatched feet, those feet are more susceptible to uh, having these separations that can go ahead and uh, uh, progress to, to, to white line disease. Um, if you see these separations uh, or if you see these hoof capsule distortions along with uh, your farrier, you can look for separations on the bottom of the horse's foot and, and you can actually probe those or see the extent of them. If you feel that they are excessively deep or abnormally deep, it's so easy to just take a little hammer or the back of an instrument and just 
tap in that area on the outer hoof wall and go to the good side of the foot or the other foot, come back to that foot, you'll see, you'll hear an abnormal hollow sound. It's very easy to do. Once you recognize this sound, you can tap around the horse's foot and then you can almost pinpoint the area where your separation uh, uh, occurs. And then, you know, the, the, the next thing as veterinarians, if we see a section like this, it's very easy to get the radiograph machine and, and uh, you know, take a lateral and a DP view of the foot and, um, you know, uh, be able to demonstrate the separation not only to yourself, but also to your farrier and to your, uh, until, uh, to your client. You, you beat me to it. I was about to say I spend a lot of time, as probably a lot of um, or many ambulatory clinicians do, radiographing horses' feet with farriers. Uh, one, one thing I wondered is, and I found very useful in, in your review article, was how do you recognize the difference uh, radiographically between white line disease and laminitis? Sure, that's a that's an excellent question, and uh, let's let's just just from the start, both of them are laminated cases. Uh, one having the cause being uh, you know a separation or mechanical, the other one having uh, a disease process going on. Uh, in the early stages, when you first radiograph these, if you have a <clears throat> a early stage of laminitis, and uh, you radiograph it, you, you have displacement, but the dorsal hoof wall has not changed. In other words, it's solid. Uh, on the other hand, when you radiograph a horse with white line disease, you have displacement or rotation of the distal phalanx. And here you will have a lucency in the hoof wall that begins on the ground surface of the horse's foot wall, uh, ground surface of the horse's foot, and then extends dorsally. Now, as it progresses with horses that have laminitis with disease, the hoof wall will start to, to uh, widen. You will get a lucency in there as the disease progresses. And that lucency is not a so-called gas line. That is a, a, a necrosis of the, uh, the lamellar bond there. And this lucency, instead of going to ground, will stop at the terminal papilla. In other words, before the ground surface of the horse's foot. So if you see two advanced cases in white line disease, that lucency in the dorsal hoof wall will start at the ground surface and migrate dorsally, whereas with laminitis, it'll start at the bottom of the terminal papillae of the foot. In other words, almost even with the margin of the distal phalanx and then extend uh, 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 dorsally from there or approximately, sorry. Sure. Yeah, that 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 was for me. That was that was the biggest thing I learned from from your review articles. So thanks for explaining that there. Um, your review also describes how bacteria and fungi are not the cause of white line disease. Um, that that they're they're secondary um, invaders. It seem you know certainly seems that way based on the research. Do do any of those require treatment? You know, regardless of whether the initial the initial cause. 
Yeah. Well, again, too, the you know the the cause of this has not uh, really uh, really been uh, determined. Uh, people will will say, well, this is an infection. Well, if you take the overlying hoof wall away and wire brush or debride that area, it'll clear up. This will go ahead and and maybe you know. Uh, uh, take away some of the thoughts about uh, about infection. But in the early stages of this disease, if you were to go ahead and culture it, and you know what some what culturing something that is uh, at the bottom of the foot next to you know the the environment, you're going to culture everything you can find. Interestingly enough, on some of them we cultured in the early stages, they were both mostly bacteria. But then as time goes on, as you know, even in the lab, uh, as the as over time, the bacterial environment or the bacterial culture is going to be taken over by fungi. So by the time your separation is is has advanced proximally at the top of or the uh, upper extent of your uh, separation uh, has become basically fungi because they've taken over. Um, the exact mechanism where the horn wall is digested or or transferred into this powdery substance that you see inside the hoof wall is still a little bit unknown. But we do know a lot of these uh, opportunistic bacteria do have these capabilities of of digesting. Horn. But comes back to the same question, where does the immunity or genetics or whatever uh, predispose to allowing this to happen? Uh, that's the big question mark. So that leads nicely on to the guiding principles of treatment. I suppose we cannot talk about every individual case um, or every why, what, or forever in, in, in a short podcast, but what 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 would your key points be in, in treatment of of white line disease? Good. I, I have a I have a couple of points, and it, and it goes back a little bit to what we discussed about uh, veterinarians, and and most of the time veterinarians are going to be involved in a horse that has serious white line disease, and and uh, it comes down to to recognizing hoof capsule distortions. So. The, the first part of the treatment is to improve the hoof capsule conformation, decrease the amount of distortion you have. Therefore, you're going to increase the, the positive biomechanics and you're going to take the stress off the hoof wall. Uh, number two, and here this is a take home message, uh, is that Irregardless of the extent of the separation, do your farrowry first before you resect the, the, the disease part of the hoof wall. What happens is when you, if you don't make your farrowry plan uh, initially, uh, once you dissect the wall, uh, you have lost the visualization of the bottom of the foot to fit your shoe or uh, put something on there appropriate. Now, when we have white line disease and we have a separation and that area is going to be removed, 
Well, actually, it's non-functional weight. Is we have to use uh, a horseshoe to continue the continuity of the the solar surface of the foot, and I think that's really important. Before you resect that area, it's much easier to fit your shoe, figure out how you're going to attach it, punch additional nail holes back toward the heel and other sections of the wall to put that on there. Once you have fastened or applied your horseshoe, then the next step would be to resect the uh, uh, the outer hoof wall. And with regards to potions, lotions, disinfectants, all, all of that stuff, um, from reading your review, it, it seems that you'd recommend a, a daily wire brush. Yeah, well, <laughs> I know farriers sometimes or people that, that manufacture products, maybe they're they're always not the happiest with me, but uh, myself and an and a, uh, equine veterinarian in Georgia, Dr. Bill Baker, a couple of years ago, um, he just got into the uh, Equine Veterinarians Hall of Fame, as a matter of fact. We, we did a study on, uh, I forget exactly, I don't have it in front of me, um, 25 or 30 horses with a severe white line disease, bilateral, over a couple of years. And on one foot, we, we, we shod the horses, we did the resections, and then on one foot, we used a wire brush. And on the other foot, we put one of many different uh, preparations that are made or advertised or purported to cure white Lyme disease. And we watched these horses over time. We measured the hoof wall. We measured the, the, uh, the solid growth at the top of the resections. And believe it or not, the ones with just using a wire brush uh, did better than the ones with uh, uh, with these different medications on it. We never saw an advantage of using medications. Now, having said that, there are some medications uh, that are have methylene blue in them or some kind of a staining mechanism, methylate or uh tincture or tincture of iodine that will actually form, uh, uh, be able to outline the tracks uh, in, in the resections that are still going into the foot. This gives the clinician uh, almost a, uh, a roadmap to where they can continually debride this until you get down to good, solid uh, uh, epidermal tissue on top there. That, that's really interesting. I personally have always favoured tincture of iodine and, and I've congratulated myself that application of that would, would desiccate the, the foot and, and, and um, kill the bacteria and the fungi and whatnot. Um, but, um, so it seems as though I can still use that, but um, I shouldn't necessarily congratulate myself that I'm doing any, any more good than just showing myself where, where else needs resected. <laughs> no, you should. You should. Yeah, you should I, should take a, I should take a wire brush to it instead. <laughs> well, I think you should congratulate yourself. So, for what I've heard so far, you do a you do a fantastic job. Uh, in this country, uh, it's very hard to find uh, tincture, and I've always had um, uh, maybe a little bit of the holistic side of me says that if uh, if I can't put something on my own skin, well, then I'm not going to put it on the uh, 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 on the horse's foot. And sometimes tincture can be just a little bit irritating. Uh, here, uh, when we can find sometimes that cattle uh, iodine, uh, 
Um, every once in a while, you can find we'll dilute that down to two percent, or uh, sometimes we can find methylate. And personally, um, it it really uh, acts as a dye marker. In other words, it outlines these tracks. I think, in my mind, probably a little bit more as a uh, um, antiseptic or antibacterial or something like that on there because uh you've probably seen yourself once you open uh these uh, or once you do your resection two days later uh you know that is nice and dry and it's like nothing ever happened so um it, put, it still puts a lot of question marks out there but um i think the more we we ask questions, and the more we understand some of these things, I think the better off we are. Just briefly, Steve, casts, boots, and burrows, would you avoid these generally? Um, well, let's, let's, do, let's do two out of three. Let's start with, with the cast. Now, um, a cast – Casting on a shoe or putting a cast on the bottom of the foot is a is a good option. Uh, if you don't feel that you can put some kind of na uh, nail on shoe or something on there, you don't have enough hoof wall or uh, you don't feel you have enough wall without getting in trouble, I think it's re it remains a, a, a very good option. Um, uh, and what a cast by themselves, uh, they have a tendency to constrict the hoof capsule. And that's sort of been sort of, you know, hesitant to do that for a long while. Uh, but uh, right now, there's a really good uh, methodology that actually has come out of the UK about applying cast, which I've sort of got on board a little bit, but that might be for for uh, uh, another day. But when you use glue on shoes on the horse's foot, it's a very good option. Although if you can do your traditional farrowry, I'd rather do that uh, in place of the glue on shoes because I'm still a little, I have a lot of questions about putting, uh, you know, the acrylic, uh, which, which sets with an exothermic reaction, all that heat on a horse's foot. Um, uh, over time, a few times. As far as <clears throat> boots go, uh, boots create, they, 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 they're easy. They, you put them on the bottom of the horse, but they create a moist environment. And I think one of the biggest things you want to do, especially in the early days of your resection, is to go ahead and uh, uh, create a dry environment. Turn the horses out when it's dry. Leave them in if there's torrential rains. Uh, put them in uh, wood shavings or or sawdust, which has a nice uh, astringent effect on the feet. In other words, keep them dry. The burr holes was a way, I think, of cheating uh, in the horse show world. Uh, you ran across a good case and you. Uh, this horse needs to stay and work or we're going to get it sold or that sort of thing. And we'll just draw, draw a hole at the top of the reach, uh, top of the separated area, which you can determine on radiographs. And then we'll go ahead and we'll put some kind of disinfectant or medication in there on a daily basis and rinse this or flush that. Well, you know, it all sounded good, but uh, you don't get 
to all the diseased areas within that resection. Number two, you retain moisture in there. Number three, I've seen some really significant problems following this where uh, horses that had severe uh, or had marked separations went on with this technique and that were allowed to stay in work, they went ahead and they, the bone displaced and uh, uh, it created a problem that could have very well been avoided. In other words, the bottom line, I think, in, in good medicine, uh, good farrowry, that area overlying the, the, the separated area is diseased, it needs to be removed, and the whole thing needs to be debrided and debrided continuously until it grows out. Finally, Steve, and, and we've already touched on this and you suggested that we sh- vets should become farriers. Uh, on, the, on the basis that we're not all going to become farriers, um, we're going to have to work together. And, and I think that these cases present um, a real opportunity for collaboration. Um, and you obviously have a unique, pers- well, not unique, but but rare perspect- perspective in this, and that um, you're both a vet and a farrier. And I, I wondered if you had anything to add to the the perpetual discussion as to how vets and farriers can can work better together. Um, I personally find that some farriers are very open to discussion and ideas and they're progressive, whereas some some just aren't. And continuing education or CPD or whatever you want to call it tends to preach to the converted. It's always the progressive ones that you see at any sort of meeting or, or, or talk. Um, and do you have any ideas as to how the two professions can can work better together? You're probably aware of the work I've done for AAP and, you know, through most of my career trying to improve uh, the vet farrier relations. And you're exactly right. There's a lot of progressive vet farriers, wonderful, skilled, and they want to be on the latest, you know, update and, you know, doing what is uh they feel is the best. There's other ones that are sort of set in their ways, and this is the way it is, and this is the way you know uh, my mentor showed me. So there is no other way. Um, one of the problems that I think we face is that there is no standardization in farrowry. So you have a long, you have a sliding scale of of knowledge. Uh, skill, uh, interest, so on and so forth, uh, instead of having some kind of standardization. Whereas veterinarians, whether no matter what kind of veterinary medicine you practice, we all finish with a degree. So we have a starting point. Uh, I personally think that veterinarians can probably play more of a role, especially if they have an interest in the foot, because Having an interest in the foot, working with a lot of farriers, you can actually provide some guidelines for farriers, for, for farriers, ask questions, you know, throw out options, get into discussions. And the bottom line is not just, okay, we're going to apply this, but we're going to apply this why. And it comes down to making both professions think. But if you can get farriers to think about what they're doing, it's no problem for them to go ahead and do it because they they can use their initiative as a farrier there to implement your thought process. So 
uh, it still remains a big problem. Hey, there we go. Um, Steve, I'm sure we could gas all day about this subject, but we're unfortunately out of time. I'd like to thank you very much on behalf of myself and on behalf of Beva and the listeners for, for joining us for this podcast. And um, I've certainly enjoyed making it, making it and, uh, and I've learned from it and um, I hope other people do too. Thank you very much, Steve. Uh, thank you for having me. I hope it was helpful. Thank you for listening to this equine veterinary education podcast. More on the subjects discussed in this podcast can be found online at wileyonlinelibrary.com forward slash journal forward slash eve. <laughs>